you have your Bibles, and you wouldn't mind standing and reading along with me, we're going to read, continuing on in Acts chapter 15 tonight, we're going to read Acts 15, starting in verse 36 through chapter 16, verse 6. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and went through Syria, Cilicia, and strengthened the churches. Chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way throughout the cities, they, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Before I jump in, I just wanted to... Uh, sort of second reiterate the story and table signups. We I know it's short notice. We only have a few days to sign up, but if how many of you guys joined us and were a part of that story and table for the first rendition? Okay, cool. We uh I think we learned a lot through that season. We learned sort of our our need for community, our um I think we we saw that there were some really good things through that. And we saw some struggles with our schedules. Anybody else feel that? Struggle with schedules. So in round two, as we're trying to rearrange some of these groups, really what we're trying to do is get some better analytics on what your schedules are like and how we can try to commit to a night of the week and how to better arrange those groups around when people actually have availability. But honestly, part of that is going to be just making it a priority. Anything that we do that you want that, that's important, that the Lord's doing, that's out of your normal rhythms, it's going to take some effort to reorient your schedule a little bit and make it a priority. So I just encourage you, like, if you sign up, it, the schedule's not going to perfectly open up. There's a lot going on, right? <laughs> We have to kind of make an intentional decision that this is something that we're going to commit to and sow in and, and be a part of for a season and uh, reorient your schedule around that. Okay? All right. Jump into our passage for tonight. This passage, honestly, is a bit of a black eye on the church the early church. There's so much has been going right so far in the book of Acts. So much has been going good. And then you get this story. You get this, this story. And it, it's honestly, I, I know it said it's a black eye, but it's also strangely comforting to me. Anybody else like read the story and like oddly comforted by it? I think it's... Yeah, it's, it's, it's both of those. It's, it's, it's black eye. It's, it's kind of a, ouch. Here's these two spiritual leaders, these brothers in mission, arguing. 
And yet, there's something comforting about it. I'm going to take it in two parts tonight. First part, we're going to look at this fight, this disagreement. And the second part, we're going to talk about Timothy. So it's kind of two separate things, and I'll try to tie them all together. We'll see. Before we get into, into this very much, the question is, do you, do you ever disagree with people? Have you ever been in, in an argument? How many of you have been in an argument today? <laughs> okay, you don't have to raise your hands. Um, <clears throat> some people actually, like, really, really dislike arguments. Some people are, like, just not confrontational. And they don't like to be in disagreements. They don't like to, to have that conflict around them. There are others of us who, uh, what did you say, Naomi? Like, sometimes I'm in a conversation and I don't realize that it's an argument. <laughs> to me, it's just an enjoyable conversation. And it's coming across argumentative. Not that I enjoy arguing. It's just sometimes that happens. But I think there's three different sort of types of disagreements, arguments. Some arguments are, are minor. Some of them are just like, and we were joking, it's, it's, Naomi and I were, well, I was joking. She took it pretty seriously. It's how you load the dishwasher. <laughs> or how you empty the dishwasher. I was, I emptied the dishwasher the other day and I put the silverware away and she's like, did the kids put the silverware away? Nobody knows what where it's going. And No, that was me. That was me. Um, anybody really care? about how the dishes get put in the dishwasher. Yeah. The rest of us are like, <laughs> they get clean, right? The commercials always show that you can put them in like full of food debris and stack them in there. Anyways. Uh, there's minor disagreements. Maybe like, I mean, you could argue over sports teams or Marvel and DC. There's lots of different things you can argue over. Then there's sort of medium-level arguments. Maybe couples and families have disagreements over how maybe some money is spent. What's, what car is purchased or um, where you live. These are, sort of more, these are more important substantive things that we argue over. Um, where t your time is spent, maybe. And then there's these, the word in the ESV here is, was it, sharp disagreements. There's sort of this epic level of, of arguments that happens, this, this larger level, emotional, passionate, strongly held beliefs, beliefs things that you won't budge on. You guys been in these kind of arguments? If you say no, I'm just going to know you're lying. So we <clears throat> and there are some things that you absolutely shouldn't budge on. There are some things in life, some things that are important and you really shouldn't budge. Like they they're worth fighting for. They're worth arguing for. But often I think Things, little things, become epic-level arguments, become these sharp disagreements uh, because there's history involved, because there's people involved. Things that are going on below the surface and in the heart, and sometimes these little things, like doing dishes or whatever it is, get blown up because there's beliefs history and expectations and, and uh, things that have built up over time. Things that are going on that are at work behind the scenes. I think that's when major arguments blow up. They get way bigger than they should when there's history involved. And all of a sudden, a little disagreement over the laundry turns into a massive argument. When this happens, we know it's not necessarily about the laundry. 
how you fold your shirts or what if you don't fold your shirts or whatever how the laundry magically appears gentlemen in the, the washing machine anybody else oh shoot digging myself in a hole tonight um <laughs> we all have arguments we all have disagreements we have things that that come up and let's be honest let's let's just be real that there's been some disagreements in this community there's been some disagreements at this level sharp disagreements over the past several years I mean since I've been here there's been some splitting ways type of disagreements that have happened I mean let's let's masks vaccines political assumptions that we have about each other service times worship style I don't know I could probably go on with the different types of disagreements that we've had that we've had to walk through with each other some sharp disagreements some rightfully so some emotional some that got blown up because there's history involved expectations from long history of being together as a community and all of a sudden something happens and that blows up Is that hitting home for anybody feel that it's not just this community this is the reality that happens in any community when there's people involved when there's emotions involved this happens the reality is I'm sure that we're not done with our disagreements there's gonna be more that happens there's gonna be more things that come up I think this has a lot to do with what's happening in our passage tonight as we look at this passage as we look at what happens with Paul and Barnabas there's some history involved there's some things taking place that we have to, to look at. And I want to look at this story and see if there's a few things we can glean from that. Okay, so let's, let's jump in here. Let's catch it up first. Paul and Barnabas, we looked at this for the past few weeks. Uh, they got together with the, the other church leaders in Jerusalem. They had this Jerusalem council. They had just finished what we call the Jerusalem council. They had just debated likely argued Paul was pretty passionate about this right we know because like every book that he writes he addresses this issue he they just debated argued major doctrinal issues can the Gentiles really be saved without becoming Jews first is it possible to enter the church without first becoming a Jew this there was a major deal they had just debated this, and they'd finally settled the issue. The gospel indeed was for the nations. The good news does apply and is for the Gentiles. Amen. Because that's all of us. They had drafted a letter intending it to be dispersed to the nations, to be spread the good news. This is the beginning of what will become a very entrenched tradition within the church of letter sending which is why we have the New Testament they draft a letter they send it out one of the things I love from that story that we looked at the past few weeks there's clearly two heated opinions there's two sides that are being argued at least two deeply held beliefs we know that there's only one right side, obviously. There's a winner on this occasion, the gospel. And then there seems to be resolve, right? Pastor James, James steps up and he reads a scripture. He brings a scripture from the prophets. And they say one of the most comforting lines in the New Testament for Christian leaders. For anybody in law involved in, in church leadership, I find this is one of the most comforting lines. And it's repeated three times in that last section that we just looked at. It's this line. It seemed good. 
It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. It seemed good to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Three times you get this phrase, it seemed good. And for me, in church leadership, this is a very comforting verse. Look, we, we church leadership doesn't know everything. The apostles in this church council in Jerusalem, they don't have all the answers. Paul says that we know in part and see in part. But under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, what we can do is we can see what feels good, what seems good to the Holy Spirit. What seems right. There's, there's language there that is, is comforting. And with the council there, Paul and Barnabas, they resolve that conflict with, it seems good. And so that's where that all just happened. We just looked at that, and we're going to move on. After that council, Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch. They stay there for some time, teaching and preaching. And then we jump into our passage tonight. After some days... Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. I love this about Paul. He wants to go back. We don't know how long after, Luke just says, after some days. Paul goes to Barnabas, and this is the way I picture this happening. This is my just the way I imagine this playing out here. He goes to Barnabas, and they start reminiscing. This is my imagination, okay? Start reminiscing over that missionary trip. Start talking. Hey, Barnabas, do you remember that trip that we took? How epic it was? Um, this is all me. Remember that sermon that I gave in the synagogue and how, how the people responded they, they responded to the gospel so much, they asked that we come back the next Saturday, the next Sabbath, to teach again. They kept having us back. How many people submitted their life to Jesus? Remember how that ended, though? They chased us out of town, threatened us. We, we took our sandals off and we shook the dust from our feet. Remember that? But what about Iconium? Oh, yeah. That was a pretty sweet part of the trip. Remember they tried to stone us? Kill us? We had to run, go to Lystra. Remember that guy who's crippled from birth? He got healed. They tried to worship us. Remember they thought that we were Zeus and Hermes? You guys remember this journey? It's all clicking. Oh, yeah, but they tried to murder us, too. In fact, they stoned me, left me for dead. Let's do it again. Gentlemen, we have these conversations, right? Epic journeys. This is what I call type two fun. I can imagine Paul and Barnabas just reminiscing over the journey, the the. The, like, type two fun. It wasn't fun necessarily in the moment, but in hindsight, you're like, that was pretty epic. Let's do it again. So they want to go back. Paul goes to Barnabas, and he said, let's go back. Let's get the band back together. Let's, let's go on another trip. Let's visit those churches that we started. And I love that Paul is concerned. He's not like just some absentee father who started these churches and is, like, distant. He wants to go back and check in. Those churches that we helped plant, let's go back. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. Now we get to the argument. We get to this disagreement here. 
Barnabas wants to take Mark. John, Mark. Sometimes these Bible names, like they have multiple names, and it's hard to keep track of who's going on here. Bar- Barnabas wants to take Mark, and Paul says no. Apparently, on their last journey, when they were in Pamphylia, Mark deserted them. He abandoned them. He abandoned his post. He left, and he returned home. And Paul says, no, we're not going to take him along. And Paul can't believe that Barnabas would even think of taking this guy. Do you remember that journey? We just talked about how epic it was. They were stoning us. I don't know if Mark can handle that. This ends up in a very heated argument. The ESV just says a sharp disagreement. But it's enough that this dynamic duo, this group that has been together, this, this duo that's been together for some time now, they split ways never to travel together again. This is a heated argument. The Greek here behind the word sharp disagreement carries the idea of violent action or emotion. This is an intense conflict. The, the word can mean convulsions, and it can refer to somebody running a high fever that his face is red carries overtones of severely heightened emotions, red, distorted faces, loud voices, things being said that should have been left unsaid kind of argument. Strangely comforting, this story. Paul and Barnabas, these heroes in the faith. Let's think about this for a second, though. Think about this argument. Who's right here? You got these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, and who's right? That's how we resolve arguments, right? Who's right? Who is justified? So for Paul, this was his trip. Remember, he's the one that approached Barnabas. He went to him and said, hey, let's go on this trip again. And Barnabas is trying to bring somebody else along. Paul's on a mission. He has plans. There's a job to do. We can't take a deserter. It's going to be hard. There's going to be shipwrecks and beatings, and I'm sure he's just thinking, I don't know if this guy can handle that. They can't have a teammate deserting them. For Paul... The gospel's worth everything, even if that means being stoned to death. What message, what, what value does that communicate if you desert? What does that say? But then think about Barnabas' side. Barnabas, we know, is the, what's, what is his name? He's called the son of encouragement. He's the perpetual optimist, the encourager. We know from Colossians chapter 4 that Mark was Barnabas' younger cousin. So there's a, a family tie here. Come on, Paul, this is my little cousin. Surely this encourager, this, this motivator, this, this pastor is seeing his little cousin and he's saying, we need to give this guy a second chance. He can prove himself. Maybe he's matured a little bit, Paul. This is his nature. I'm doing a lot of this tonight, but I, I have to imagine Paul, Paul and Barnabas, I have to imagine Barnabas thinking, Paul, do you remember? You were the guy persecuting Christians. You were the guy that was out there hunting down the Christians. And when you came and you submitted yourself, you had the vision, you submitted yourself to, the, to Jesus, I vouched for you. Remember, it was Barnabas who vouched for Paul. 
He stuck his neck out for him. Surely Paul could offer some of that back to his cousin. And ultimately, we know from the rest of the New Testament that Mark does, in fact, show himself to be useful. In fact, Paul, when he's in prison later on, who does he ask for? Because he's useful. Mark. Paul actually asks for Mark specifically because he's useful to him. We know, I mean, it's possible that it's the same Mark, probable, I think it's the same Mark, who wrote the gospel that becomes sort of the source text for the synoptics. Clearly, the Lord was going to use Mark. So who's right? Who wins this argument? There's history involved. Other parts that have to play into this. Emotions. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about Barnabas when he references the Jerusalem council and the decision that was made there. He says this, Galatians 2.13, The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It's possible, scholars debate this, that in the Jerusalem council, when all that was being debated, Barnabas actually sided with the Judaizers. And so as Paul is getting ready to go on this journey, there's some, something under the surface already. If Barnabas was wishy-washy at the Jerusalem council, can Paul count on him? He wants to bring the deserter. Maybe he's going to desert too. Maybe he's going to leave Paul. It's possible that Paul's frustrated with how Barnabas reacted, what he did during the Jerusalem council, And now is importing that into the current argument. We've never done that, right? And part of the trouble is, if we're honest in evaluating this disagreement, both men were right. You can see both is on the right side of this argument. And that's any complicated argument has that. As I was thinking about this, is Paul is mission-minded. He's got the mission on his mind. All he can think about is accomplishing what the Lord has put in front of them. And then Barnabas is people-minded. He cares about his cousin. He's trying to be encouraging. He's trying to be for the people. Both are right. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators, this passage said, our judgment goes with Paul, but our heart goes with Barnabas. And I think that's true here. But the reality is no one's budging. They split over this issue. They split ways. Barnabas took Mark with him, and they sailed to his home in Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers in the grace of the Lord. They went to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, a couple thoughts here. I'm just going to run through some thoughts, and we're going to look at Timothy. I love that this story is here, that it's in our Bible. Luke put a story in here for us of a disagreement. The Bible is not like our social media feeds where everything looks picture perfect. The authors of the scripture don't put a filter on it to make it look good. 
This is kind of an ugly thing that happened. This is a heated argument. This is important because these guys are real, normal people. I know even I said earlier, the heroes of our faith. But these guys are normal people with flaws. And they get into arguments. They sin. They mess up. The point here is that they are not the heroes of this story in any way. And the scripture is very clear, not to build them up is some heroic figure. If you read the Bible through and through, real quick to break down all of our heroes. Except for Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero of this story. Second thought on this. Conflict happens, you guys. There are going to be more sharp disagreements that you're going to get into. We are going to have them. Anytime people are involved, emotions are involved. There will be conflict. Sometimes even sharp conflict. Sometimes people split and they leave and they go away. There's no conflict, by the way. I thought about this with the Flynn's leaving. That's, that's not what's happening here. <laughs> But people split. They go their separate ways. Conflict happens. I think the challenge is that when we're faced with conflict, are we only concerned with being right and proving ourselves right? Guys, this is a, if you're only concerned with making sure that you are right, you're just going to keep digging yourself into more and more conflict. Are we looking at the other side? Are we seeing the big picture? Are we asking the Lord to let us see the big picture? Or are we only concerned with being right, being perceived as right? Third thing, when there's disagreements, do we see the humanity, the image of Christ, the image of God in the other person? Do we try to see them in the best light possible, or do we look for ways to tear them down and belittle them and strawman them? That's really hard to do when you're in the middle of a disagreement. Just sometimes you need to get some breath. Fourth thing, Going back to the Jerusalem Council, I think it's interesting that you have these two disagreements sort of paralleling each other. In the Jerusalem Council, there was resolve with what seems good. What seemed good, and there was resolve, and they moved forward, and the gospel continued. I think that would have proved helpful if Paul would have thought through that a little bit in this disagreement. Okay, hold on, Barnabas. What do the scriptures say? What seems good? Let's move forward. But ultimately, my fifth thought here, there's still a mission at hand. People still need to be reached. We're still on a mission. Sometimes in the church world, church community, people end up in different places. We have many friends, close friends, who are now attending other fellowships, going different places. There is still a gospel that needs to be spread in our city. And the reality is, even if we had sharp disagreements, that we have more in common than we, with them than we do with the people in the world. The tie that binds us is the gospel. And there is still a people in Sonoma County that need the gospel. Ultimately, we know that this is how Paul saw this disagreement. He still spoke very highly of Barnabas in the future. 
He still saw him as an effective missionary, a partner for the gospel. He still spoke highly multiple times, three or four times in his, in his letters about Mark. He asked for Mark by name while he was in jail. Which is the next one here. When and if at all possible, reconcile. And do it quickly. We know that eventually they do reconcile, though they never travel together again. They never technically do ministry together again. But I have to imagine that they prayed for each other. They cared for each other. They had nothing but goodwill to say about each other. Every reference we have is pretty positive. Seventh thing. There's only eight, and then we're going to move on to Timothy. But seventh thing. Ultimately, trust that the Lord is sovereign, and he knows what he's doing. He works all things out for his glory, even our petty arguments, even our sharp disagreements. He will work them out for his glory. The result of this disagreement between these two missionaries is double the missions. The gospel spreads twice as fast. Paul uses it. Psalm 76 tells us, says this, Surely the wrath of men shall praise you. The God, and he writes says this, The God who makes human wrath serve his, serve his praise has done it here again. He uses even human wrath to serve his praise and to serve his will. This clearly doesn't excuse or give a platform or permission for you to go argue with people. That's not what I'm saying, please. Those of you who love arguing. This doesn't excuse hum human wrath, but it shows again and again, just like the whole gospel message, the whole message of the cross is that God it, it, it takes the greatest human foolishness. He takes the depth of our folly, our ridiculous arguments, and he uses them, and he brings good from it for his glory, for our good and his glory. That's the eighth thing. Keep the gospel central. Church, Christians, in our conversations. What is the thing that binds us? It's not affinity. It's not life stage. It's the gospel. The good news of a resurrected Messiah that the God of creation took in his own way, in his own flesh, in his own ability, he made a way to reach the world and to reconcile the world by his own blood. That's the thing that binds us. We can disagree and argue and have heated conversations over all sorts of things. Some things are really important and we should do that. But we have to keep the gospel central. We are on a mission to reach a lost and hurting, dying world. We are called to live as a resurrected people, as a people, a family that has been marked by the work of a king who's raised from the dead. As a unified family, Jesus said that the world will know that we are his people. How? By the love that we have for each other. Part of love, how many of you guys are married? Part of love is being able to disagree, find resolution, and move forward. Part of what makes marriage work 
is you have two people who are different. And the Lord brings us together and we have to work through conflict and find a way to live at peace together and work towards a common mission. That's why marriage is, it's part of why marriage is a reflection of the gospel. It's the same in the church. When we find ways to work past sharp disagreements and live at peace with each other and live at peace in the world, that's something that the world looks at and sees and says, that's different. Those are Messiah people. Those are people who live in a way that reconciles people, that brings people together. Okay, part two, Timothy. How many of you guys read this this week ahead of us and kind of scratched your head as you got to this passage? Timothy. Let's read it and let's look at this. Concluding chapter 15, Paul chose Silas, departed, goes on. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple there named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. We know this guy, right? We know Timothy. We spent a good long time looking at First Timothy. We know some of the backstory here. We know that uh, ultimately, Paul's going to look at Timothy as like a son to him. This is the origin of that relationship. This is where Paul meets him. Paul's traveling from east to west this time. He's traveling, and they come to Lystra and Derby, and they encounter this young man, Timothy. And he stands out to Paul. He stands out, and the boy's father was an unbelieving Greek. He was not following Jesus, or, or he wasn't around, possibly, historians say, at this point. But his mother and his grandmother, her name, his mother's name, yeah, grandmother Lois, I think is what it was, uh, they were Jewish, and they brought him up to know the scriptures. He was taught the scriptures from a young age, 2 Timothy 1 says. These two ladies along with Timothy, probably heard the gospel during Paul's first missionary journey when he first went through this area. And Timothy apparently displayed some tremendous maturity in his faith. As a result, Paul wants to take him on his journey. He wants him to join him and Silas. Verse 3 says that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because his dad, uh, because of the Jews who were at this place, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, so as you're reading along, you just read the Jerusalem Council. Then you come to this passage. It's kind of mind-blowing, Paul. You just argued pretty intense against circumcision, against needing to, to be circumcised to be a part of the church, needing to become like a Jew to be a part of the church. And here he circumcises Timothy. Didn't we just deal with this, Paul? This is, as I'm reading this, like, come on, Paul. We just, we just dealt with this. Wasn't there just a council about this, remember? We wrote a letter that's, in fact, what you're doing right now. You're going around with that letter. You're telling everybody about what just happened. Remember, Paul, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. We just resolved this. Something's going on here. Something is going on. And I think Paul has Timothy, it says here, he has Timothy circumcised out of sensitivity to his Jewish audience. Some think that Paul compromises here. Maybe he's, he's heated, 
from his argument or something. Something's going on, and Paul compromises here from what the Jerusalem decree had just said. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the case. I think there's more to this story. Paul resists. He, he, he won't have t- Titus circumcised. Galatians chapter 2, he says he wouldn't do it. Titus was a pure Greek. He was total uh, Gentile. And when the gospel was at stake, he would not, he refused to circumcise Titus. But in Timothy's situation, it's different. And this is, I love this in the scripture. There's nuance. It's not always black and white. Timothy's situation is different. He is both Jew and Greek. His mother was a Jew, and his father was Greek. And under the current uh, Jewish teaching, a child that was born in this situation was Jewish as to his mother's, who, who his mother was, because it was the, they could know for a fact who the mom was. Paul knew that Timothy would be considered offensive to the Jews because he didn't get circumcised as a child. He knew that would be offensive because he was born a Jew, raised a Jew, and never circumcised. So it was sort of a a way of a missionary strategy, a way of strategy is a sign of respect for the Jewish heritage, in an attempt to maintain the sense of unity in the mission field that he's about to go in, Timothy undergoes this procedure. Procedure is probably a polite way of saying that. This is painful. This was allowing them to build a bridge towards the Jewish community. John Stott says this, Once the principle had been established that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, he was ready to make concessions and policy. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance for some human beings. I actually think this is 100% in line with the Jerusalem Council's decree. This totally fits with what they were trying to accomplish. Remember those four things that they said in their letter? You guys remember what those were? Four things, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from the blood, from things that have been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You guys remember that list? Four kind of obscure things that are like, okay, you're welcome into the church, but we ask that you just abstain from these four things. Those four requirements that James lays out, they're basically ritual matters. I mean, we can get into a lot of this. It gets kind of confusing. But these were ritual things aimed at making fellowship possible between Jew and Gentile. See, the the leaders there in the church, and James specifically, I think they knew— that in order for there to be any sense of working together and collaboration and table fellowship between Jew and Gentile, there's going to have to be some level of respect for each other. So having established that the doctrine of salvation is 100% by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law, James then suggests, he appeals to the Gentiles that they should probably avoid, they should avoid these practices that would offend Jewish Christians. I think his goal is to foster healthy relationships, healthy fellowship. James wants the Gentiles to know that Where Moses is read, where Moses is respected in in Jewish communities, Jewish believers might understandably be sensitive about certain things. 
And so out of love for them, the Gentiles should avoid these practices. I think those four requirements are basically, it's ways of showing love for the Gentile, or for the, the for, yeah, for the Jewish Christians. All four of them dealt with things that you can read about in, in Leviticus 17 and 18, three specifically around dietary matters that would have made a Jewish Gentile meal impossible. It would have made table fellowship impossible. And then the sexual morality piece is a little bit more complicated. If you read those passages, Leviticus 17 and 18, I think that it's possible that that has to deal with some pagan marriage practices, specifically marrying within close relations in your, in your family. Because sexual morality is clearly a no-go. But in particular, what's happening here. So once circumcision had been declared unnecessary, once circumcision was, was no longer a barrier to the gospel, the truth of the gospel could be secured equally, Jew and Gentile. Then there are things that you should do out of love and respect for each other. There are things that you should do to make missions make more make, make missions easier make fellowship possible and i think what we see in our passage tonight when when paul comes to timothy and he has him circumcised is very similar it's the same thing it's in the same heart of what james lays out there i know it's circumcision so it seems like it's opposite but he's the heart is the same Even circumcision, though unnecessary, might be beneficial. What was unnecessary for acceptance was advisable for acceptance with some human beings. That's what John Stott said. So in this passage... I think we see a really good picture of a, a, a missionary application that we can apply today. Paul was willing, he said later on in 1 Corinthians, to be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. In order to reach some, he would adapt to different ministry, uh, into different ministry situations. He would adapt the way he presented the gospel to different audiences. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Yet without changing the message of the gospel, without compromising the truth of the resurrected Messiah, I think we should be willing to do the same. Think about Timothy's commitment to the gospel for a second. Timothy is... A young man, but he's grown. And he's asked to be circumcised for the sake of the gospel. There's no numbing medication. There's just a knife. And he does it willingly. It's kind of convicting for me. I think there's a principle here for us. That as long as adapting, being all things to all people, as long as adapting doesn't mean adopting sinful behavior and, and ways of living, I think that we should be willing to adapt our method, our presentation, to reach the people that the Lord puts in front of us. I think that's what's happening here. Not necessary. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. 
But it might make sense in certain situations for that to be the case. I think we should be willing to sort of adapt for the sake of the gospel. Our goal is not necessarily to, sh- to press a specific culture on another culture. In missions, we, we don't want to do this. We don't want to force our culture on another culture. But we want to press the gospel into various cultures. We want to bring and present the gospel into varying different situations. And so the thing is, we look for ways without creating stumbling blocks. We don't want to arbitrate. Said this before: the gospel's offensive enough, right? Jewish Messiah hung on a tree, raised from the dead. That's already a lot to take in. We don't need to add more stumbling blocks to that. So, if possible, if there's things that we can do, even if they limit us, limit your freedom. If they limit your ability, they limit your, I mean, sometimes even happiness (laughs) for the sake of the gospel. If that's what the Lord's asking to do, why add more stumbling blocks? What was the result of all of this? This argument, Timothy, circumcision, circumcision here. The result, they went, verse 4. Chapter 16, they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decision which had been reached by the apostles. They bring that letter. Verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith. They increased in numbers daily. The gospel was at work. The churches were strengthened. They were effective in their work and this journey. The churches were strengthened and encouraged and the gospel spread and the churches were growing numerically. The mission goes on twofold now. Now you have Paul and Barnabas both on mission. Now you have Timothy who joined Paul and would become like a son to him. Now you have Mark, who joined Barnabas and would pen a gospel. The Lord works in spite of us and through us and through our conflict and through our mistakes and our arguments and our foolishness. The gospel is at work and is spreading. Amen? Let's pray. Jordan, worship team, come up. God, I just thank you for these these stories. As I said earlier, these strangely comforting stories of you at work in spite of us. Of you working through us. Of you working even when we sin and we make mistakes and we argue and we backbite and we fight. Even when we fail. You're at work. God, I pray that we would have the posture even of Timothy here. That even through painful things and situations, God, that that you are supreme and above our comfort of our preferences of always being right. God, I, I just pray even 
for some of us maybe that are in the middle of sharp disagreements or are feeling the sting of sharp disagreements from long ago. God, I ask that you would bring reconciliation. That we would see each other as effective, useful, God-indwelt people. God, I pray that you would work to bring reconciliation, that you would show us that the mission goes on, that you would lead us, guide us, give us strength to even make hard calls if we have to do some repenting. And God, we do ask that you would use this community this church as missionaries sent ones to bring the good news of the resurrected Messiah. God, that this week, even as we go and we celebrate tomorrow, God, we enjoy maybe a day off, God, that we would be kingdom-minded, gospel-minded. God, do what only you can do. We love and trust you. In Jesus' name.